As I hope you're aware, as I, we tried to get word out and let you know, uh, this is Beth and my final Sunday before we leave for a three-month sabbatical uh, that we will be taking for the months of May, June, and July. The Presbyterian Church um, encourages its pastors who have been, especially in the same context, in the same place for seven years, to go and to experience a sabbatical, both because it is good for the pastor, or in this case, pastors, uh, and it is also a good thing for the congregation. Uh, we got to experience this a few years ago when Jill went on a sabbatical and came back renewed, and yet it was also a time of growth for this church to step up in different ways while she was gone. I can tell you that Beth and I are looking forward to this. A sabbatical is a time when there are some very structured ways that we have been developing in order to really sit at the feet of Jesus. And it's different just sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving and experiencing the gospel than it is sitting at the feet of Jesus to write a sermon series or to teach a Bible study. And it's not that it's good or bad one way or the other, but it's different. And it's a way that we are excited to just experience uniquely for a few months. But it's also a time of growth for a congregation. It is a good thing for a congregation to have this. It's gonna be a chance for people in some ways to step into different roles and to exercise gifts in different ways. And we are well prepared for that. We have an incredibly gifted staff of women and men who you are gonna see stepping into roles that will continue to uh, allow this church to not survive, but to thrive and to forge into new territory in the months to come. We have uh, you, our lay people, that are incredibly gifted, who we know are going to be stepping up in different ways and having new opportunities to lead and to serve and to pray, and we're grateful for that. You're also, if you've read about the sabbatical, if not, there's a link uh, that you'll find on the back of your bulletin to go and read some of the details about uh, how it will work. But we're going to have five different outside speakers who will be coming as a unique way for this church to experience the sabbatical. And these are five of the most gifted communicators of the gospel from around the country that I know. It's gonna be a unique time for you to hear from these women and men. It's gonna be a time that I think will be so positive and so good and so different that there's a chance when we come back, you'll be going, oh, are you guys back? Because <laughs> it is gonna be a unique chance for you all to grow as well while we're away. Again, the church encourages this every seven years. And I've been the senior pastor and head of staff of this church for eight years now. I've been to the beginning of my ninth year. Last East, Sunday, last Easter, was my ninth Easter to be uh, here with you all. Beth is a parish associate, as you know, of our church. And she has been serving in that role now for seven years and has now started her eighth year. And it's funny when we tell people that because uh, we often get a response from folks like, really? And what I'm choosing to believe when you all seem surprised by the time frame is that it's gone really fast <laughs> and that it seems short to you because that feels a little different than you're like, oh, is it, has it only been eight years? <laughs> but we're choosing to believe that it's gone so fast for you all and for us. Um, but it's important we say before we read the scripture passage as we approach uh, this time of sabbatical that you all hear that we don't take this for granted. We are very grateful 
We are very grateful that you all, that this is the kind of church, that our leadership is the kind of leadership that doesn't just tolerate this, but sees the beauty of it and the importance of it, and in fact has sent us to go and do this. And the difference of that is profound. That this is a church that wants to invest in its leadership and for them to thrive individually and to be healthy so that they can continue to serve. We don't take that for granted at all, that this is that kind of church. We're grateful to the personnel committee that encouraged this and has enthusiastically supported. We are grateful to the elders, to the session that heard this and said unanimously, we don't just allow for that, we send you to go and do that. We are grateful and we are grateful to each and every one of you. And we'll be excited to come back in August and to share what it is God's been doing in our lives as we have just been able to sit at the feet of Jesus in different ways. Uh, I promise not to show you a slideshow of what we all did that first Sunday back, but to share with you all what God's been doing in our lives, but it is also be with excitement that we come back to hear what God has been doing in this community and in your lives individually, because God will be making all things new. Amen? Amen. All right. So with all that in mind, I was a little curious as to what the scripture passage would be. It's obviously our lectionary text as we continue and are living the liturgical year, and it is an interesting one that the lectionary text has given us, and I'm really grateful for it as we go into this day, this first Sunday after Easter. The text we're reading from actually picks up what we read last week from John chapter 20, and where it's important we realize this begins is that these events start in verse 19 on the evening of the first Easter day. So we're still on Easter day when this begins. Uh, what we saw with Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb was at dawn on the first Easter. This is the evening of that same day where it begins. And this is what John writes. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin... One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here this morning, that we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. So I need you guys to know that when I read this passage, I feel a little defensive. I feel a little defensive because my name is here. It is this passage of scripture and this one alone that Thomas in the Bible becomes known as And I feel like we need to expand our thinking a little bit on that. (laughs) I get that John's writing and saying it's better for those who do not need to see to believe, but to cut Thomas some slack when he hears that the guy they were following who was killed on a cross has come back to life when he hears that a dead person has appeared before them and he doesn't believe them, that's not that weird. (laughs) That's not that weird of a thing. It's not that the Romans were master killers. They knew what they were doing. They saw people who died regularly on a cross. Not one of them came back. And so the fact that they're going, guess what? He's alive again. He just happened to show up when you weren't there. For Thomas to go, I need a little more evidence of that. Again, it's not that weird. And all Thomas is asking for, if you stop and read the text really closely, is Thomas is asking for the evidence that was required for the others to believe as well. He's not asking for anything different. If you go back and read verses 19 and 20, when Jesus shows up as the other 10 disciples are in hiding, uh, they says that he says, peace be with you. And the disciples gives no response to what they're doing. But it's when Jesus shows them the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. It says when they see the wounds and can touch him, then they rejoice knowing that it's Jesus. Thomas is not asking for anything different than what it took for the rest of them to believe themselves. So I think you're picking on the guy a little bit. And on top of that, as a bit of a side, you got to ask yourself the question, why was Thomas not in the room when the other 10 were locked behind a door in hiding? Is it because he was doubting or is it because he was braver than the rest of them? And while the rest of them were behind a locked door scared to go outside, Thomas the brave was out hunting and gathering and providing for the rest of them. Is doubting Thomas the thing that we should know him by or Thomas who has more courage than the other 10, perhaps, is the way we should know him. I choose to have an expanded viewpoint of how we think about Thomas and there's nothing in the text that could convince me that you can show me that I'm wrong. I can't convince you I'm right, but that's what I choose to see. There's so much in this passage that's so good. There's so much in this passage that is so important. 
I love, for example, and I love to just wonder, and we don't have to kind of figure this out like Presbyterians like to do at times, that we can just sit in the wonder and the awe of how it seems that Jesus on this first Easter, and actually on the second time that he appears to the disciples, that there's something in his bodily resurrection that it is him, and yet some things are different from before. He didn't just go back to normal. You see that? You see how Jesus, when he first appears to Mary at the tomb, even though she's face to face with him, she doesn't recognize him at first. And then all of a sudden, even though it is his flesh, they can touch him. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He's not a vision. They see the wounds. They can touch him. He touches them. It's his physical body that's there, but he can materialize behind locked doors and through walls. The resurrection isn't just kind of coming back the way you were but there seems like there's something new that's been created in our resurrected bodies. And I wonder sometimes I read that, what that will be like for us to experience that glory of the resurrection ourselves. We should wonder at the miracle of the new thing God is doing in the resurrection of the Messiah. But where I want us to spend a few minutes today in this text, among so much that's there, is I'd like us to spend some time thinking about the significance of Jesus' first words to the disciples. It's a phrase that he actually uses three different times. Peace be with you, he says. Peace be with you. He says it the first time when he first appears to the disciples behind a locked door, He says that the second time when they realize because they see his wounds and realize that he has come back from the dead and he says that they rejoice, he says it a second time then, peace be with you. And then when he appears to them again when Thomas is now present, he says it for a third time in the first words out of his mouth, peace be with you. If you stop and think about it, it's kind of a curious but also wondrous phrase that if anything Jesus could first say to his disciples, anything he first wants to communicate, he communicates a sense of peace and a desire for them to have peace. He doesn't shame them because they abandoned him in his moment of need. He doesn't give them some football coach fiery speech about how they're going to go conquer the world in that moment. If I can overcome the grave, guess what you can do in your lives? The first thing he says to them three different times, peace, he says, be with you. I think it's fascinating that the first ramifications of the resurrection for the disciples is that they are to have peace. The first fruit, if you think of it, of what it means for disciples and followers of Jesus to live on this side of Easter is that we are to have peace in our lives. And so I think it's worth asking as we gather here today, with events taking place in this world, the events taking place in your lives, in your relationships, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our families, in our own minds and hearts. Are you a person of peace this day? Peace be with you, Jesus says. And it's an interesting phrase because it's not dependent on the context, isn't it? There's nothing peaceful about that time. Jesus has just died. The disciples are in hiding. They know that Roman authorities and Jewish authorities who have the power to kill them, just like Jesus, are actively hunting for them. And when Jesus comes and says that there is peace for them to have, he doesn't sit there and go, guys, let me tell you how this is all going to work out. This is all going to be fine. I've kind of looked into the future. I've got these amazing powers. You know, this is he just says to them, peace in the middle of the chaos, in the midst of the storm, peace, 
be with you. Now, to understand what we mean by this word, we're going to bring a dictionary definition of the word peace. When you look up this word, there's two different definitions that the dictionary offers for how we think of peace. The first is that peace is a lack of conflict. That's what many of us are praying for and should be praying for, for example, in the Ukraine. This is an important dimension of peace, the cessation of conflict, conflict in our lives, conflict in our relationships, conflict between nations, conflict in this world. A lack of conflict, the dictionary says, is the first definition of peace. The second definition, and I want you to keep both of these in your head over the next few minutes, is that peace is something that is a sense of inner peace or tranquility, a sense of inner calm. Now, these are related, but they're different. The first one, if you stop and look at it, is defined by the absence of something. The second one is the presence of something. The first one is the absence of conflict. And again, I don't want to say that that is a negative thing. That's a good thing. But you can have the first one and not have the second one. You can have the absence of conflict without having true inner peace in our lives. It may just be me, but some of us have been a part of maybe extended family gatherings before where there's different dynamics between different people who are there and maybe some conflict in the background and different ways of seeing things and you come together and it's like guys it's thanksgiving for one meal can we not talk about politics for one meal can we not talk about this subject or that subject and what you hope for is definition number one you hope that you get through the meal and that there is a lack of conflict that is there, but that doesn't mean that there's a sense of calm in those meals, right? Everyone's there that when you put your name and face to it, I've got one, goes, I have a question. Everyone's like, oh no, is this where we're gonna go? Could you pass the mashed potato? Okay, good, we can handle that, you know? But there's that tension running beneath that's there. You can have people, unlike the disciples, who have on the outside a wonderful context for their life who are not people of peace. They don't have inner calm. They might not have conflict. You have people who, from the outside look incredibly successful, who are doing well, whose family seems to be doing well, and yet there is a restlessness to them. There is a wandering to them. There is a searching to them, maybe to you, to me. You can have the first one. That's the absence of conflict without necessarily having the second one, which is what I would say is the presence of peace. And it's very important for us to recognize that biblically when Jesus offers peace, peace be with you, he is talking about the second one. He is saying to them in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the conflict, in the midst of everything that is going on, you can have an inner calm, an inner tranquility, an inner sense of peace, despite what the circumstances around you say, and that the resurrection offers that. Peace, he says, be with you. That's what the Bible describes as a peace that passes understanding. It's not a peace that's built on a lack of conflict or everything on the outside going well in life. It's not the result of circumstances. It's the presence of a biblical peace. I had someone witness to that peace to me this week, a member of this church, a friend of mine. I got a call on Thursday asking if I could give this individual a ring and I have gotten his permission to share this 
Um, and he called me, and I, I called him back, and he told me that he just that morning had received an unexpected diagnosis of cancer. And I wanted to ask for prayers. And it was surprising news to hear, and so I asked certain questions. What are the doctors saying? What's the treatment going to be? What is this journey going to look like? And he described it to me. He described uh, the path ahead as he understands it now. He described what it was like to tell his family, to tell his children, to tell his wife about this diagnosis and what it means. And then after describing all of that, I asked him how he was doing. And he said, well, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a little anxious about the treatment. I'm a little anxious about what this means. But the interesting part is, I'm not frightened. I actually feel very at peace with whatever this means. He said, this week in one of the Bible studies I attend, I was asked what difference the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus practically makes in my life. And as I was sitting there thinking about that question, what I realized is Jesus faced everything that I am facing and so much more, and he has overcome it, and he is with me as I walk this. And because I know he's with me, my friend said, I actually have peace. That's what Jesus is offering the disciples. That's what he says is the first fruit of the resurrection. That's what he says is an opportunity that is available to you and to me. And as my friend so accurately described, the reason we have peace is not because, as the old saying goes, we know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. He says, I know the one that's journeying with me and knowing that he is with me and is not going to leave me, it is that that gives me a peace that passes understanding. And that's what this text teaches Jesus is saying here, peace be with you. But then in the Gospel of John, he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it is here that the Holy Spirit enters into the life of the disciples in a new way. And the Holy Spirit is the living presence of God. The understanding that as we journey through life, God is not some distant reality off in heaven looking down on us, wondering what we're doing, but God loves us, God cares for us, God is involved in this world that he loves, God is involved in your life, God is involved in my life, and that he is walking with us and will not let us go. Jesus is saying to the disciples in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the danger, in the midst of the chaos, because the Spirit is with you, you may have peace. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. And it is remembering that, the faithfulness and the presence of God that can offer you and I peace as well, not the absence of conflict, but inner calm, inner tranquility. Because God has you and will not let you go. I have loved thinking through the lens of this scripture this past week as I approach and we approach this sabbatical. It's framed this for me in a different way of how we as a people might approach both the next three months but also the months ahead after that. Because the Lord who has been faithful to us 
will walk us into the days ahead. Amen? The God who has been with us. And that's a great way when you need to remember how to find that peace is to look back at how God has been faithful to you in the past. And so that's some of what I've been doing and thinking about. It's kind of come to this point, been thinking over these eight years. And there have been some ups and there have been some downs over these eight years. That happens when you journey together as a people. But overall, God has been so faithful, so good to us beyond what we could expect or even imagine. I thought, for example, this week about how when we arrived eight years ago and moved from Atlanta to Austin, Texas, and how we had a whole lot of different coffees and desserts and different homes to meet small groups of this congregation. And if you were here at that time, you might have participated in one of those. And I asked some questions. What has you here at Covenant? What are the values that has you at Covenant? What are you frightened of here at Covenant? What worries you about the future? And the answer on that one that kept coming back over and over and over and over again was a worry about the $8 million of debt that remained on the fellowship and education building and how it was sucking out of our operations operating budget as a church. So we said, well, we should probably do something. We should try to do something about that. There have been two other efforts in the past to try to reduce that number. And all that happens, we reduced it from the original 16 million down to $8 million. We talked to a couple of experts as it was beginning and they said, oh, you're not presenting anything new, no new drawings, nothing new for the congregation. You're asking them for a third time to pony up in this uh, effort to reduce this debt. You will be lucky if you raise half of it. And so we said, well, we're not going to hire you then. And we didn't. And what we did is we just started praying. We just started praying as a group, as a congregation, as a leadership about, Lord, what do you want to do with this? And what kind of church do we want to be? And what would it mean to be more missional? And God stirred at a level we could not have imagined. And not only was the debt retired, but we had more that was given on top of that. And I wish that we had come up with some wondrous strategy that changed the face of fundraising. I would have published a book on how we had done what the experts said we couldn't, the new plan, some new path, and it just revolutionized church fundraising and, and be a best-selling author. We didn't have any of that. We didn't do anything new except ask God to work in our lives. And God did abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. God has been so faithful and good to us that that is a distant memory of those days of living with that debt. I thought about it in terms of how good God has been and how faithful God has been to us as we have been in a time in this country where church participation has been in steady decline and yet covenant has slowly and steadily been growing and growing and growing and that the majority of that growth has been among people who were not part of a church before coming here. We're not members of a church before joining. That is not just church swapping, but somewhere in this, we're making inroads into the majority Austin culture. And a few months ago, I had a church from Dallas that had been hearing about this, and they contacted me and said, man, what are you guys doing around church growth that's doing this? And my answer was, nothing. We have no evangelism department. We have no church growth department. We have never at any level, and those of you on staff know that this is true, we have never once talked about as a staff, how do we grow this church? For those of you who have served as elders here, you know this is true. We have never had a conversation of how do we grow this church. But God has been doing something in the midst of this that's the work of the Lord. And God has been good to us, and, and we give thanks for that. But it is God that has been faithful and good to us, has been present with us. Or take finally, 
as I've been thinking about these eight years about how to navigate a church through a global pandemic. If there was a class in seminary about how to navigate a large congregation through a global pandemic, I slept through it, (laughs) which there is a possibility that happened. There was no playbook for the last two years for any of us, any of our workplaces, but certainly for us as a congregation, there was no playbook of what to do. And yes, we had amazingly gifted people in our COVID task force. We had wonderful people on our staff who worked hard. We had wonderful people in our session who led boldly and prayerfully and courageously. But in the end, we are actually, it looks like emerging from this pandemic, not having just survived it, but actually stronger than we were going into it. We saw that in uh, last Sunday at Easter as this campus was once again, just like before the pandemic, jammed full of people and you could feel the energy and the electricity. But also what we saw last week was our highest ever online numbers for watching and worshiping via our live stream. We have moved out of the pandemic with something none of us expected, which is this whole different way of being a hybrid of on-campus and online church. And we are working right now to figure out how to lean into that and do that well. Because I can tell you, I was in every single meeting about how to navigate the pandemic and nobody at any point said, I think this is gonna pivot us for a future that is stronger than anything we imagined before. But God has been faithful, has been good, has led us, has guided us, doing more than anything we could ask or imagine, and all of that that we've seen is not because of one person, or two people, or a small group of people, It is because God through the years has used the women and men who are part of this church to come together to become something that only God can be the author of. And it is that same God who is calling us into the next few months, who says, I will be with you. It is that same God who is dreaming about what a year from now and two years from now looks like for this church that is beyond what you and I can ask or strategize about or imagine today. And so because we trust in that one, I leave you until August with Jesus' first words to his disciples. And I can say them with confidence, not because of me, not even because of you, but we can say them to each other with confidence because of the Holy Spirit who is alive in our midst. Peace. Peace be with you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that your presence would give us a peace that passes understanding. With all that we see in this world, with all that we experience in our lives, remind us again of how good you have been, how faithful you have been. And because of your spirit that has journeyed with us, that is with us, We look forward with hopeful expectation. May we know the first fruits of the resurrection ourselves this day as we hear you whisper to us, peace be with you. Amen.